Um, we are, I, I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes feel like Christmas is one of these times where it's just crazy. I love Christmas. I love, I love the lights. I love being able to drive down the street and see where I'm going because people have lit their houses up finally. Um, I love the smell of fresh Christmas tree, even though we have had a fake one for several years. So I'm always going to Home Depot and stealing the, the, the branches that they break off of other people's trees and hiding them throughout my house so I still have that scent. I love the fact that we can get peppermint ice cream. Come on, that's, that makes me happy. And then I, I honestly genuinely love Christmas music so long as it stays in its lane after Thanksgiving, it's wonderful. And yes, our kids have been practicing since October. That's fine. That's reasonable because they needed to prepare. But man, as soon as Thanksgiving was over, our tree was up, our house was decorated, the lights went up, and we started playing Christmas music on repeat on the vinyl, which is really, really fun. So I love it. And yet, if I'm really honest, there are moments where it feels like it is this cyclone of Christmas cheer that can feel overwhelming. And way too many times it's felt like Kathy and I come crashing into to Christmas Day and the house looks like a wrapping paper bomb went off in it. Every single dish we own is stacked up in the sink, teetering precariously, and we're just like on the couch, exhausted, and, and our boys are playing with whatever you know, treasures they got. And if we were honest in that moment, we're secretly a little bit grateful it's over right? Because we're just tired. And it's in moments like that, once I've gotten past the exhaustion, where I begin to feel a little guilty, like yet again, I've missed the point of Christmas. Yet again, Jesus and, and the reason that we celebrate this season has gotten kind of eclipsed, buried under Christmas parties and making sure that we got Christmas cards sent out. Didn't happen this year. Sorry. I hope that you all have a wonderful Merry Christmas. Um, that, that, we, all of the, that you found the right presents for everybody on your list so somebody doesn't get left out and you feel guilty and all those kind of things. And all of a sudden, Christmas and the reason for Christmas gets buried like baby Jesus is being buried under fake snow back there, right? Like it just gets eclipsed by all the other stuff. And that's the reason why we celebrate Advent, these four weeks leading up to Christmas. That's the whole purpose of it, is to help us to slow down in the midst of the craziness. I mean, we, we get jumped into Christmas by Black Friday. It's almost like, here, we're thankful, we're having dinner, but we got to be done really quick because the biggest shopping day of the year is coming, and we got we to gotta consume. So now we're both feeling gross because of how much we've eaten, and now we're feeling guilty because of how much we've spent but we needed it. And all of a sudden, this Christmas chaos begins. And Advent is intended to help us to slow down and to remember the reason why we even celebrate this season of the year. To, to remember and celebrate the greatest gift, which is the first gift that was ever given, and that is Jesus Christ. That God loved the world so much that he sent his son to reconcile, to restore us back into relationship with Him. That's the purpose of Advent. And, and we use lots of tangible things to remind us because we are a forgetful people and our God at times uses props to remind us. And we use props. So we have Christmas trees. And Christmas trees are something that we have borrowed out of uh, 
cultures and times where people actually see snow on the ground and you don't have to drive a couple hours to go see it, right? This is, Christmas trees were intended for those people who were in seasons where the snow takes over and the trees are all completely bare. They go and cut down evergreen, evergreen trees and they bring them into their homes to remind them that although winter is here, spring is coming, that this too shall pass. And for us, we put Christmas trees in our homes in part to remind us that although we live in the midst of a broken world where sin has ravaged God's beautiful creation, this too will pass. And it will pass because Jesus is coming. And so we we celebrate the hope. I mean, just yesterday we were in here uh, for a very different reason. We were we were saying goodbye to one of the, the moms from our preschool who had succumbed to cancer. She was 38 years old, leaving behind a six-year-old son. We live in a broken, fallen, sin-scarred world, and we need hope. Hope that the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. And our Christmas trees remind us that because of Christ coming, although we are in this brokenness, we have the hope that the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. We also place lights up all over our homes and in our houses, the light as a tangible reminder of the light that came into this world to help guide us back to our creator, the one that created us to be light, and then the, the reminder that we get to be light in our spheres of influence. We also use things like Advent candles, and these, these, are, these each kind of represent a different theme that Christmas is about. So we had the candle of hope, again, that we have hope in the midst of our grief, in the midst of the hurt in our world. We have the candle of peace, that Jesus was the Prince of Peace, come not to make peace between nations, but to make peace between God and His image bearers, to deal with the sin that separates us from Him so we can be restored back into relationship. And today, I want to light The third candle, which is the candle of love. You going to light? Good. And and I can think of no better verse that symbolizes the love of God than one that we're all really familiar with, which is John 3.16. But we're not going to just stop with verse 16, because I think part of the emphasis comes after that. So let's go ahead and read this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, what's funny is halfway through there, I realized I wasn't actually reading. I was kind of just going off of memory. And so I start putting in the whosoever's and all that kind of stuff. This has become so familiar to us that in many ways we, we say it, but we don't understand the gravity of what it's saying. So let's, let's go ahead and read this again, but in a slightly different translation that isn't necessarily as familiar, so we can actually hear the heart of what it's saying. So this is from the, the contemporary English version, which has become my favorite devotional uh, translation. God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only son... That, so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. 
He sent him to save them. That's the hope. And that is the peace that we have. That not that we loved God first and so earned the right for the, the Messiah, our, our Savior, to come. While we were still in open rebellion to God, before we had ever taken a step towards Him, He took the greatest step towards us by sending His Son, Jesus, God in flesh, to walk amongst us, to, to, to kind of represent God's heart in a tangible way that, that mankind could see. But ultimately, the purpose of His coming was so that he could restore us back into relationship, and he did that through the cross. So we have to recognize that Christmas carries the weight of Christmas because of Easter and all that that represents. And in this time of Advent, again, it's not simply looking back 2,000 years ago to when the Messiah first came in flesh. It's also looking forward in preparation for when God is going to send His Son again to fully, once and for all, redeem the world, when every tear will be, will be dried, when every heart will be bound up, when our bodies will cease to break down, when we'll, when we'll stop having to have memorial services for people who have died. I look forward to that day, when God fully and completely restores the world to how He intended so we can join Him in caring for it. That's what we have to look forward to but we live in the in-between. Now, one other thing, one other tangible tool that we use, at least in our house, is a nativity scene. Anybody have a nativity in their home? A couple of you. Some of you have a dozen of them, right? And this is, this is one we're almost outgrown at this point. This is our little people nativity set. We've had it since our boys were you know, very, very, very young. Maybe even the first, Ethan's first Christmas, we got it. And when we first bought it... Um, <laughs> it, it only came with Mary. We didn't even get Joseph. <laughs> it's like Mary's a single mom on Christmas. Maybe Joseph got tied up at work, couldn't quite make it. Ironically, the, 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 the wise men made it, right? They, they traveled some 600 miles from the east, made it like two years earlier than, you know, historians say. They were there. The shepherds made it. Joseph was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> Typical, right? But... <laughs> Isn't it ironic, by the way, how easy? I, we laugh about Joseph being missing. We had to actually contact little people um, and say, can, can we get Joseph? You know, he's kind of... Imp but how often do we overlook Joseph in our Christmas celebrations as well? When you begin to think about Christmas, when you begin to think about the stories, we think about maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth because that's where Luke's gospel begins in telling the stories with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the child that they would have, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way. And then we go to Mary and, and the angel showing up and telling her that she's going to be a mom even though she's not yet married and the audacity of that, and the scandal of that. And then we, we mention Joseph, but it's really more in passing as we get on to the really good, meaty stuff, like the shepherds being in the fields and the angel announcing, and then them going and seeing it. And, and we, we talk about, you know, them giving birth and laying him in a manger and all that kind of stuff. And Joseph gets overlooked. Why is that? I think part of the reason that that is, is because none of our gospels ever record a word that Joseph says, not a single word. In fact, Luke, which is the typical book that we read the Christmas story out of, it's the one that Charlie Brown's Christmas used, right? It's the one that kind of has all of that with a bow on it. 
Well, when Luke was writing his gospel, he says that he went out and interviewed all of the eyewitnesses so he could share his gospel. But we know from history that Joseph had died before Jesus' public ministry ever began. So he wasn't around for Luke to interview. He wasn't around for any of the disciples that ultimately wrote one of the gospels to be able to talk to. And so we don't hear any of the words he said. And yet, he plays such a central role, not only to the Christmas story, but to God's redemption of mankind in the, in the raising up of the Messiah. And so this morning, I want to do something that for many of us, we may never have done before, and that is to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to need to put on our, our sanctified imagination this morning because we need to try to put ourselves in Joseph's sandals for just a moment. Now, Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy, and that genealogy is a list of names. It's the part of the book that you probably skip over to get to the stuff that you want to get to, right? But that genealogy is there for a reason. Remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and that Jewish audience was waiting for their Messiah. And Matthew's desire is to help that Jewish audience recognize who Jesus was and how he was an answer to their centuries of praying. Remember, the very last prophet that was, is recorded in the Old Testament is Malachi. Some of you know him as Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, but Malachi wrote that there would come one to prepare the way, and then God would come, and God's Redeemer, His anointed Redeemer, and that the term there, anointed one, is Messiah, or translated into Greek, it's Christ. Those are titles for somebody who would redeem God's people. And that Redeemer would come from the line of David, but specifically would be tied all the way back to a promise that God had made four to 6,000 years earlier to a guy named Abraham. Remember, when God first called Abraham, he was a pagan man who was worshiping pagan gods. And God said, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything you know and follow me. And if you do, then I will make your name great. I will create an entire nation out of you. I will bless you, and from your line, I will bless all mankind. That was the promise he made, and he said it several times to Abraham. It was reaffirmed to the Israelites at Mount Sinai that God would not only bless them, but he would bless all of mankind through them. And so the, the genealogy actually begins with Abraham traces it through David all the way to Jesus. And the point that Matthew is making with that genealogy is that Jesus is the blessing that God promised through Abraham's line. And then, once he's established that for his Jewish audience who is aware that they've been waiting for that blessing to really be fulfilled, then he gets into the story of how that happened. So let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So let's stop there, and we're just going to slowly work through this story this morning. So Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married. We know that Mary was 
maybe a teenager, could have been 12, 13 years old. We know that Joseph, we're, we're not sure how old he was. He could have been a teenager. He could have been as old as like late 20s. We're not sure. But what we know is that their form of engagement and marriage looks very different from our westernized form of engagement. Here, you have a, a guy and a gal who begin to, to date one another, and then they say, you know, maybe, maybe this could work out. I kind of like you. And so then they, you know, when they're ready to really commit, they get engaged. Typically, it's the guy who puts the ring on her finger and saying, you know, this, this is a pledge that I want to marry you. Then they start doing premarital. They start getting ready. They start making the plans for the wedding. And then they have the marriage. And at that point, they become legally bound together. Well, in the East, it's very, very different. Because the two individuals who are ultimately going to be married really don't have a whole lot of say in the matter. Typically, it's their parents who are determining who should get married. And once the parents say, hey, you know what? Let's link our families together. Your daughter, my son. They say, they agree. They make a pact. They pledge this boy with this girl for their lifetime. And once that pledge is made, it is ironclad. It's legal. It's as if they are married in the eyes of the community, except they're not married yet. They're simply pledged to one another. And during that time between them being betrothed and being married is a time of preparation. But still, the, the betrothal is powerful. If the man dies between that time, it's as if the woman becomes uh, you know, a widow. And if she dies, he becomes a widower. During that in-between time, he's preparing a home. Sometimes that would look like simply making an addition onto his parents' house in order to bring her to live with them because it's a much more communal society than we are used to. We live in a very fractured, individualistic society. When we think of family, we think of our nuclear family. But they are a much more communal group of people. So even, but they would be, he would be preparing a home. And they would be absolutely, in their minds, preparing their hearts and their minds to get married. But here's the thing that we learned last week when we looked at Mary, is that what they expected that betrothal period to look like and what ended up happening is very different because as we know, Mary gets visited by an angel and the angel says, you are going to play an important role in the redemption of God's people because you are going to bear the Messiah. You are going to be pregnant, become pregnant with the, the long-awaited redeemer of God's people. And Mary very understandably asked, well, how is that going to happen? I, I've never been with a man, and I am a virgin, and all of those kind of things. That's, how does that work? Right? And God just says, I'm God. I kind of spoke the world into existence. I can speak a child into your womb. But now all of a sudden, Mary has to bring this information to Joseph. And when she drops that, can you just for a moment put yourself into Joseph's place and try to feel what he might have been feeling as this girl that he has been pledged to spend the rest of his life with tells him, I'm pregnant. Okay. So, so as I've been preparing my home for us, as I have let it be known in our, in our village of Nazareth, it's a very small village, everybody, word gets around, so everybody knows that we are pledged to be married together, and now you're telling me that you're pregnant? And then she drops this one on him. God did it. Oh, okay. And then she goes on to elaborate. Well, I was visited by an angel, and the angel 
told me that I was blessed. I don't, you know, oh, you're blessed, all right, uh uh-huh. That this child is not just any child. This child is from God. Joseph, I'm still a virgin, and yet I have the Messiah in my womb. And I can, I I ran across this picture of Joseph. Uh, Can we throw it up there? This is called The Anxiety of Joseph. It was painted by a guy named um, Tissot about 100 years ago. And this is Joseph in his carpentry shop, just kind of grappling with all of the, the emotions that must have been reverberating through his mind. I don't even know this girl very well. We haven't spent virtually any time with, with one another. But man, I begin to prepare And now she drops this on me. And I want to to believe her, but come on, please. Are you kidding me? God did it? That's that's not how it works. I may be an uneducated carpenter, but even I know that. Chances are this girl was messing around with somebody else in the village and got pregnant. And now she's trying to pull one over on me. What do I do? What do I do? How do I respond to this? Well, we, we, we read how Joseph begins to process through this and what he plans to do in verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Joseph, we learn a little bit about Joseph here. One, he takes God's law very seriously. In his mind, the girl that he is betrothed to has broken their marriage covenant. Even though they're not married, it still makes her an adulteress, the fact that she's pregnant, if this happened by the means that it probably happened by in his mind. She's an adulteress. She has cheated on me. And the law says that I have every right to be done with her, but... Joseph also shows himself to be a man of compassion and grace. He has the right to bring her before the public. He has the right to demand her death by stoning. But he chooses not to do that. Because he doesn't want to throw her under the chariot just to clear his name. Right? And so instead he decides probably the best course of action here that can... Try to begin unraveling our lives from one another without ending in her death is just to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here he he quotes Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. (laughs) I wonder what Joseph must have felt when he had that visitation from the angel and what Mary has been saying is corroborated by an agent of the Lord. I imagine in some part there's some relief, right? 
she hasn't been lying to me. Okay, she's been telling me the truth. This, this child really is from God. And, oh, crud, does that mean I'm the one who has to apologize for this? Go figure, right? But, but then on the other side, there's this sense of, oh, crud. Like, what does this mean for us? You mean to tell me that the Messiah that our people have been waiting for for centuries is in my fiancé's stomach? And God is asking me, me, to raise him? Who am I? I'm a carpenter from Nazareth. Who is she? She's just some teenage girl from a podunk village. Who are we to raise God's son? I can only imagine that sense of feeling overwhelmed, of feeling unworthy of what's being asked of him. I don't know if that's what was going through his mind, but that certainly would have been going through my mind if I was in his position like, oh, crud, who am I? I don't have any training. I don't, I don't know how to teach him how to read, let alone like be the king of Israel. What do I have to give him? Like, how on earth am I going to afford this child? I can't, I can't afford gold. You know, he needs to be in a golden cradle or something. What does God expect from him or from me? It'd be a little overwhelming. But here's what we do know. We know how Joseph responds because in verse 24 it tells us that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. But he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph does a couple of things here. Number one, he obeys the Holy Spirit. He obeys this angel. He obeys what God commands him to do. I, I, you've heard it said, or I've heard it said, um, that, it, that a crisis doesn't make us, it reveals us, right? It's not that, I, I think of 9-11, and I think of those firefighters, and we say they were so courageous on that day. No, those firefighters were courageous, period. It's just on that particular day, they had the opportunity to show it by how they responded to those burning buildings. When everybody was running from it, they ran to it and up into those buildings, and many of them paid the ultimate price. Well, in this instance, Joseph reveals his character by how he responds to the need, even though it will cost him everything socially. Because you know if he had a hard time believing Mary's words, you know everybody else is going to have a hard time believing when he says, God has entrusted this child to us. She is still a virgin. And everyone's going, uh-huh, heard that before, right? Nice try, Joseph. And so he knows what it's going to cost him. It's going to cost them socially. And he knows, knows that he's not equipped to raise the future king of Israel. And yet he's willing to say yes anyway. He's willing to obey every detail that the angel told him. They choose not to consummate the marriage, even though he has the right to as her husband once they're formally married. And they speed up the wedding process. He marries her right away. They don't wait. You know that's going to go over really well in that society. People are going to talk. doesn't matter. Because he, he trusts God and he worships God and he fears God more than he fears the opinions of people around him. 
And then he chooses not to consummate the marriage because they want to protect the sanctity of this child's birth, even though they are the only ones who know that this child really is from God. And then he chooses to name the child Jesus. Now, the name Jesus means God saves. That's what the angel told them to name this baby because in a lot of ways, this was exactly what God was doing by sending Jesus. It was to save his people. Not from Rome, as people anticipated the Messiah would be, but to save God's people from a much more ancient enemy, sin and death and all that goes with it to separate us from God and all of the pain that we still taste today. That's why Jesus came is to defang death so that even when we have a, a memorial service for somebody who passed away far too soon, we can, we can stand up here and in our grief, it's not a grief without hope, and we can say that death doesn't get the last word and this isn't goodbye. It simply will see you soon. And that's the hope, that's the solace that we have as Christ followers when somebody dies way earlier than we would ever expect, when there is pain left in the wake of their absence. That's the hope that we have, is that the brokenness doesn't get the last word. And Joseph is obedient, and he names Jesus, Jesus, God saves, because God was going to save his people through him, even though I know that Joseph didn't have a clue what that would look like, probably had some different understandings of what Jesus' messiahship would look like, that he would be a conquering king who would help throw off the yoke of Rome and reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. That's what they anticipated. Jesus was a very different messiah, but we talk about that at Easter. But it's interesting and important to note that it is Joseph who ultimately names Jesus that gives him that name. In fact, that's what the writer Matthew here states. The very last thing he says as he's talking about Joseph is that he gave him the name of Jesus. Well, why is it important that it was Joseph who named him? Because in the Jewish culture, it was the father that had the right to name the child. And so by Joseph giving Jesus his name, he is tacitly saying, I accept the mantle of responsibility that God has entrusted to me. I am going to adopt this child as my own. I will treat him as my child. I will act as his father. I take ownership. I take responsibility for him. That's a big deal. It's something that I'm sure that Joseph probably didn't feel all that worthy of. I certainly wouldn't have. The thing about Joseph is he, was, he wasn't spectacular, not in any way, shape, or form, but he was faithful and he was obedient. And God has a tendency to use faithful, obedient people, people that we would never expect. Joseph joined a long list of faithful, obedient people, people like David, right? David was the youngest of 12 sons, so unimportant that even in his own family, when a prophet shows up and says, hey, I want to meet your sons, 11 of them get prayed before him, and, and, and then he's like, well, don't you have any more sons? He's like, oh yeah, we got the youngest one. He's out in the field take, taking care of the sheep, like totally overlooked. And yet God doesn't look at the external. He looks at the heart. Or you think about the disciples. 
These are, these are guys who were imperfect in every way, shape, or form. They were the has-beens, the also-rans, the guys who were not worthy to be chosen by a rabbi to be discipled, to be rabbis themselves. And so instead they had been, you know, discipled into the family trade of fishing or, or something else. One of them was a tax collector. We all know how much we appreciate and love tax collectors, Right? They felt even more strongly in those day and age because it was basically a traitor to his own people to collect money and steal money from, from his own people to give to Rome. We had a zealot, somebody who, who the zealots were known for killing their enemies, not the kind of people you would anticipate the Messiah surrounding himself with. And yet God took this ragtag group of also-rans and he transformed the world through them. And Joseph joined Mary, a teenage nobody from some backwater Galilean village, and together he changed the world. So I know that Joseph certainly didn't feel worthy, and yet God used him anyway. And he probably did something right, because as one commentator that I, I read uh, put it, can we throw this up here? I love this. When Jesus grew up and began his ministry, he chose one word above all others to describe what God is like. He called him Father. And where did Jesus learn about fathers? From Joseph. Joseph wasn't spectacular. He wasn't a trained theologian. He wasn't, you know, he had no political pedigree to be able to train his son up. And yet God said, I'm going to use you because I don't look at the external, I look at the heart. And although you may just be a carpenter and easily overlooked by everybody else, I can use a person who takes my loss seriously but also has a compassionate heart. Now last week when we, we got to step into Mary's sandals for a moment, uh, we, we ended with a song, Mary's song that Robin sang so beautifully. Well, I feel like Joseph deserves a song too. So we are going to listen to Joseph's song. I was going to ask Mark, Robin's husband, to sing it, but quite honestly, there's a reason why he does our audio and not, isn't on stage. So instead, we're going to let the, the, the person, uh, Michael Scott Card, who wrote this, uh, go ahead and sing it for us. So let's go ahead and listen to Joseph's song.
It's one thing to, to, for a moment, kind of use our sanctified imagination to put ourselves into Joseph's place and say, what would this have been like for him to be asked to do something that was so beyond his capability? And I think there's several things that we can learn from Joseph. Uh, first off, it's that God uses unexpected people. God uses ill-equipped people. God uses people that you would easily overlook to bring about His purpose and His plans. Paul understood this. He got this. So much so that in 1 Corinthians, he addresses the audacity of the kind of people that God calls. Can we throw that up there, Mark? He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, beginning in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Boy, does that describe both Joseph and Mary. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose, chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In other words, when we recognize that we are not worthy, God gets the glory. And so there are some of you who sit in here this morning and you hear Joseph's story. And you, last week you hear Mary's story. And the week before you hear Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. And you go, yeah, 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 I get that. I know that God used them. But he could never use me. 
because, and then you fill in the blank, because you know what has disqualified you. You know the things that would impede you from ever being God's representative. And so you sit here in judgment upon yourself and say, I am unworthy. Well, I got news for you. You're absolutely right. You are. And so am I. And so is Jeff. And so is Marge. So is Michelle. So is every single man, woman, and child who bears God's image and yet has also been shaped and twisted by sin, shaped and twisted by the sin-scarred world. All of us are unworthy. And yet God has a way of using unworthy vessels. Jars of clay is a term that Paul uses. And redeeming them by putting his Holy Spirit into them by restoring them back to relationship through Jesus and what he did on the cross so that we jars of clay get to be conduits of the hope we have found in God. We get to be ambassadors of peace and reconciliation to a hurting world. We get to pour out of the overflow of the love that God has poured into our hearts That's the audacity of the Christmas story, and that's the audacity of the gospel narrative, is that God uses imperfect people to pour out His perfect love, and we, we get to do that. So He doesn't just call us His sons and His daughters. He cleans us up, and He turns us around beyond the walls of this building, and He says, now go be my ambassadors. Begin to shine the light of hope and peace and love into the spheres of influence that I have already sovereignly planted you, into your neighborhoods where you live and the people you come into contact with on a regular basis, into your families, some of whom would never step foot into a church, but they can't help but interacting with the church because you are the church, into your workplaces where the name of Jesus cannot be spoken and yet you get to reflect the heart of Jesus in the way that you teach in the way that you speak, into the way that you handle business and you take responsibility for things when they don't go as planned. Your character speaks far more loudly than your words do. Into your schools, in the, in the, the students that you're interacting with or your, you know, your classmates, or wh- wherever you happen to go, whether it's a gym or a coffee shop that you frequent, you are an ambassador of hope. We're going to hear a whole lot more of that in the new year because this is the heart of what we are called to be as a church, is the church seven days a week beyond the walls of this place that we gather. So the first thing we can take is that although we are unworthy, God has a long history of using unworthy people to pour out His love. But understand this, if God chooses to use us as He does, it may not necessarily be as you intend or would expect or would even want. Mary and Joseph were blessed by God to be included in this Christmas story. But I can guarantee you that they never, ever, ever would have chosen for Mary to come down pregnant before they were ever married. They would never have chosen the timing or the way in which it happened. It cost them dearly. And yet they trusted God and they said, here we are, help yourself to our lives. Your will be done because this is about you, 
not about us. So know that when he uses you, it may not necessarily be in the way that you expect. And it may not necessarily make you look better from a social standpoint. It may cost you. It may cost you credibility with certain people. It may cost you relationship is who you are that maybe they unfriend you on social media. Please don't be jerks on there. Please don't be the kind of people who just rail about a theological position and completely forget to love people. We already have enough trolls out there. Don't be those people. But there may be people who are just tired of seeing your post that you're praising Jesus for something and giving God credit. And they're like, you know what? You're deluded. God's a crutch. They may unfriend you. You may get passed over for a promotion. You may have people who look down upon your own children may treat you with contempt because of your so-called faith. But continue to allow God to use you. Continue to follow him irrespective of what other people say about you. Because your life speaks far more loudly than your words. One last thing, I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come forward. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, um, there are moments where I want to do something great for the kingdom. I think of the 9-11 moments, right? Where you're a firefighter and your whole life, you, you've, you're almost like, I want that moment where I can define my heroics by running towards the building rather than running away from it. But again, crises, crises reveal character. They don't create it. And Joseph and Mary's character were formed long before God invited them into his plans. And in the same way, although we look for that moment where we get to shine, where we get to be revealed as a hero for the kingdom, the truth of the matter is, after the baby was born, after that initial push where people are showing up and, and bringing presents and all that kind of stuff, after the scriptures stopped recording what was going on, there was day after day after a long day of regular, mundane obedience, of changing diapers, of midnight feedings, I, as much as I love Silent Night, and it is one of my very favorite worship songs, I'm sorry, as a, as a parent who's had two children, the first night of a child's birth is not silent in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Mary and Joseph signed up not simply to raise the Messiah, they signed up to change his diapers. And I'm pretty sure Je even Jesus pooped. Can I say that in church? just did. Sorry. They signed up to clean his scraped knees. I'm sure that even the Messiah got splinters. They signed up to teach him how to talk to a girl or to talk to his heavenly father. And what I want us to recognize is it's although publicly our character might be revealed in a moment it is formed through a long obedience in the same direction. And sometimes the greatest act of worship is found in our everyday faithfulness, in our loving the people who are right in front of us.
and are telling the truth when we want to color it a little bit. In simply saying, here I am, God, help yourself to my life. I'm going to follow you, even if it costs me, even if it means that you're going to ask me to move, even if it means you're going to ask me to tell the truth when I know I won't get the sale because of it. May we be the kind of people who trust God more than we fear the opinions of people, and may we be the kind of people who are not just looking for one opportunity to glorify God and make a name for ourselves, but that we live lives that reverberate with the love of Jesus Christ. So that when people who are watching our life, whether we recognize it or not, the sphere of influence that God has sovereignly planted us in, may we be the kind of people that when people just look at our life, they're curious to find out more about why we are the way we are. So Father God, I invite you to help yourself to my life. And I pray for my brothers and my sisters Would you help yourself to our lives? We we want to be not only your sons and your daughters, we want to be your ambassadors, right where you've planted us, with the people you've placed in our lives. May we do so faithfully to you and to your word, but also with humility and gentleness and grace like Joseph modeled for us. Even when we disagree with them, Even when we have a hard time because of the way they treat us, may we always be willing to turn the other cheek and love sacrificially. Because Jesus, you modeled it for us. You loved us sacrificially. So Father, we invite you to help yourself to our lives. Jesus, in your name, amen.